0: This evening we had some introductory fellowship on how there's a longing deep in human beings placed in them by God for a dwelling place, for a home. And that longing implies the desire to have a corporate living with a genuine family. There is also the longing in the human heart for God. For God the Father as our source, we want to know where we came from, we want to know where we should be. There is also a longing in God to have a house composed of his children, not only creatures but children produced through regeneration. And in the house of God, the genuine church, all of these longings are fulfilled both in God and in us. Please remember that we pointed out that the house of God is not a perfect church, but a genuine church. A genuine church is a church established in a locality on the ground of the oneness of the body of Christ. And because it has such a standing, it receives all those whom God has received. That is, it receives all the believers in Christ The table held in such a church is the Lord's table and all the believers are free to partake. So in the genuine church, we are living in the house of God. Then Saturday morning, we considered many verses related to the enjoyment of God in the house of God. God himself is delightful. He knows he's delightful. He wants us to know how delightful he is. And his house is very enjoyable, very delightful. And one thing that began to emerge, and I believe it's still a current flowing among us, is that we need eventually to decide whether we will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. Uh, Some may visit here. Uh, They may have a revolving door relationship With the house of God, they come and they go. And this is the age of grace, and so you may come and go as much as you please will still be here, uh, going on. Uh, The door is open. Others may sojourn in the house. That is, they spend a considerable time here, but they don't really have the sense of permanently dwelling here. But what the Psalms indicate is that the real seekers and lovers of God they decide to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their life and even for eternity, Uh, never to leave. Then last night we were considering from Psalm 84 the matter of loving the house of the Lord and living in it. And I won't try to review uh, all of these points, but a major point was we love God's dwelling place, because we love God who is expressed here. And we love God's dwelling place because we're being constituted with the church loving Christ. And we are in the house of God, the genuine church, not in a static way, but in a growing, developing, advancing way. So that as we grow in the Lord, as we mature in life, we go deeper and deeper into the church life entering into the realm of blessing, even becoming a channel of blessing as we learn to walk through the valley of weeping and turn the weeping into tears. Uh, We turn the weeping into springs, the tears into springs. And then the blessing comes and we enjoy grace and glory uh, under the shield, under the sun. It's quite a marvelous place to be. Now this morning, I want to, in a sense, backtrack to focus on the two altars in God's dwelling place. And I'm thankful that most of you were in little groups and read through the outline and read through the excerpts. Because since you read through the outline, then I don't have to read through the outline. I can be free to follow the burden on some particular points that are in the outline. And as I was uh, waking up this morning, then I began to sense some burden. As I took a walk after breakfast, then some things solidified in my being, and I'm quite happy in the Lord to, to share with you something I believe from the Lord's heart, concentrating especially on the first altar, the altar in the outer court, the bronze altar the altar of burnt offering. But before I begin to discharge the eight points of this particular burden, I want to give a further uh, opening word. In order to dwell in the house of God, you have to dwell in God. You can't separate the Father from His house. And this may help us understand why in John 14, the Lord says, In my Father's house are many abodes. I go to prepare a place for you. So it seems that he wants to bring us to the Father's house. Then he goes on to say that I am the way, the reality, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me and that I want you to be where I am, and he said that he is in the Father. So are we going to the Father, or are we going to the Father's house? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, To be in the Father's house requires that we be in the Father, that we be in God. And if we are in God, then we are in the Father's house. So if in your daily living, while you're studying or working or whatever you're doing, if you are in God, you are in the Father's house, even when you're not in a meeting. So in order to enter into the house of God, we have to enter into God. On the one hand, God in Christ as the Spirit has come into us, and now He is with our spirit. And at the table, we did enjoy this indwelling, triune God. But did we not also enjoy being in the Father and being in the Father's house? Wasn't that delightful? Just singing spontaneously, composing ad hoc as we go. Everything's all right. We are all at home. We are becoming love. We are full of life. Bring the children back. We are all at rest in the Father's house. This is the delight of being in God and of being in the house of God. There is, uh, toward the back of your booklet, a diagram of the tabernacle and the outer court. And the tabernacle itself, composed of the holy place and the holy of holies, signifies, on the one hand, Christ as the incarnated God, And it also signifies the church as the enlargement of Christ to be the dwelling place of God. But a crucial point about the tabernacle is that it signifies the enterable God. God has opened up his being in Christ through the cross and wants us to enter into him and live in him. And one of the Psalms talks about this Actually, Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 1, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So God himself is our dwelling place. And God has, in his salvation, I put it this way, has opened up himself, has made himself enterable, and has provided a way for us to enter into him. In the Gospel of John, we have a symphony in two movements. I don't know much about music, but I don't think symphonies only have two movements, right? They should have three, maybe four, right? But I I, I think it it is a kind of magnificent symphonic gospel, a divine human symphony. And in the first movement, God becomes man. God enters into man, and God comes to be with man. And where God eventually meets man is at the first altar, at the bronze altar, which signifies the cross. God dwells in the Holy of Holies, but in Christ he has come forth to be with us where we are on the earth under the curse in this physical realm And then he went to the cross and died for our redemption. And so we come to the cross, to the altar, to meet him. But just past the midpoint of the Gospel of John, when the Lord is about to go away through crucifixion and to return as the spirit of reality and resurrection, he talks about going to the Father and bringing us into the Father. Then in chapter 15, he says, I'm the vine; you're the branches. You need to abide in me, and then I will abide in you experientially. Then in chapter 17, he prayed that we would be brought into the oneness of the divine trinity, even into the oneness of the divine glory. So we do have this symphony in John of the first movement, God coming to us in the second movement, are being brought into God. And in our experience, it is like this. By the principle of incarnation, we call on the Lord, and Christ as the Spirit enters into us. Now he dwells in us. But by the principle of resurrection, we experience the cross, and we're brought into resurrection, and we enter into God. And now we begin to live a life of co-inherence with God. And co-inherence cries out for definition for new ones. It means mutual indwelling. Where the Lord dwells in us, we are His dwelling place. We dwell in Him, He is our dwelling place. And this is the goal of God's economy, to have this mutual dwelling place. So, the emphasis this morning is on how the first altar, the bronze altar, brings us into God, qualifies us to enter into God and live in God and to enjoy Him and eventually to be one with the ascended Christ typified by the golden altar and to pray in oneness with God For the carrying out of God's economy. Now, we had just a little experience of this toward the end of the table meeting. The Lord's table meeting is not a time to pray for personal matters. It's not a time to have intercessory prayer. It's a time to remember the Lord and to worship the Father. But toward the end of the worship of the Father, the Spirit prompted a prayer which we sang. You know, bring the children back. Bring the children back to the Father's house. If we are really living in the house of the Lord, we will have much enjoyment. We will enjoy the blessing. We will enjoy the grace and the glory. The sun of righteousness will shine on us. We'll get healed. We'll be supplied. We'll have a shield protecting us. But there's a particular activity going on inside the Father's house which is why the Lord Jesus said, my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. It's a house of prayer. And when we live here, eventually we learn really to pray. To pray by just breathing in the Lord, something we can do without ceasing. But... Some of you, I believe, are at a point where you can begin to have some more experiences of praying prayers of intercession and oneness with God for things that matter to God. It is the prayer at the incense altar that activates every aspect of the tabernacle. God has a principle in the carrying out of his economy. That principle is, he will not work alone. He will not fulfill his will simply by making decrees. Rather, he has ordained that there must be human beings on the earth that agree with God, that are one with God, and that pray back to God his desire, which he has infused into them. That's prayer. You may wonder, why do we need to pray? God knows everything. God is all-powerful. Why does he need us to ask? Well, God has ordained that he will carry out his will in the heavens. He will do it on the earth when the earth agrees with him, when some human beings are one with him and voice their desire to him. So God has a desire. He infuses his desire into those who dwell in his house. Then those who dwell in his house, dwelling in love, come to the incense altar to pray, and the desire that God has put into them, they now pray back to God as their desire. When our brother Daniel, toward the end of the sharing time, one of the trainees, Daniel, he was very touched by that word, which in effect was a kind of minor point, but for him it was the major point, that the seeking God will find all of his children you'll find all of his sheep. Well, this kind of desire needs to be in us. It's in God. But if we only care about ourselves all the time or about our limited sphere, our family, our close friends all the time, then there is little capacity in us to feel what God feels for all kinds of people and all kinds of church kids and all kinds of human beings that need to be saved. But when we live in the house of the Lord and are one with him, then eventually his desire is infused into us and we pray it back, and that's what prayer is. And this is a marvelous adventure of being one with him to pray into being the desire of his heart. But extended ministry on the golden altar is for another time and another place. That uh, the burden I have from the Lord this morning concerns the altar in the outer court, the bronze altar, the altar of burnt offering, which signifies the cross of Christ. So this is actually a message on the crucified Christ as our way into God, and therefore our way into the house of God. If we do not really know this altar and experience this altar every day, we won't have a practical way to dwell in the Father's house because stuff happens to us all the time. We get drawn out. We get distracted. We, we, we commit sins. We're in the flesh. We are drawn off by this worldly distraction temporarily. We're in this kind of battle zone all the time. And if we don't know how to really experience this bronze altar, we won't know how to solve our problems and how to deal with our failures and to have the confidence to come right back into God no matter what our situation is. Or otherwise, we'll try to come back into God without the altar and then we'll offend the Lord and even offend the church by recklessly, right, carelessly exhibiting ourselves. And we can't do that. So this is most precious. It's it's not threatening. It's the place where God is our exceeding joy from Psalm 43. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Now I'm still giving some preliminary points about this. But it is crucially important that you understand some basic matters concerning this altar, the cross, because this is the foundation and the base of all spiritual experience. If you don't know these things, then you don't have the ground or the base for your Christian life. And if we don't have the ground or the base, then whatever we build up will collapse eventually. You're doing well, several months, then something happens, you have a failure, everything collapses and now you don't know what to do. I had a failure now, I sin now, then, then now what? Then the enemy comes to accuse you and then you condemn yourself and then as a result you close yourself off and isolate yourself and then you're afraid to tell anyone about your situation because the enemy lies to you saying, well, if you open this up, people will think you're deranged, that you're the only one. And then you find out you're just like everybody else. So we have to have this first altar as the base, as the ground, as the beginning for all spiritual experiences. So I'd like to now bring forth uh, eight points all related to experience, but all founded in truth, concerning the bronze altar, the altar in the outer court, which typifies the cross. So we're actually talking about the experience of the crucified Christ, the experience of the cross. If you consider the diagram of the tabernacle, we can see the house of God there, typified by the tabernacle. And Christ is there as all the offerings, and he is there as the ark, the mingling of divinity and humanity. But without the cross, without the bronze altar, we cannot have Christ, and we cannot have the church. Uh, You you just can't have the church without the cross. You can't have Christ without the cross. The cross is the center of God's operation and his economy. He solves all problems by the cross. If our eyes are opened, we would be greatly encouraged because whatever problem, whatever negative thing invades our life, we have God's way to deal with it. God knows we're full of problems. That's all there is in this world is us sinners. There are no good people. There's no good material. There's just us sinners. When Christ as the Spirit came into you, he knew what he was coming into. He he knew what you were. He knew what your flesh was like, what kind of disposition you have. He he knows how much you love the world, how how insecure you are. All kinds of things. He knows that. He's not disillusioned. But he's very good at being God and very good at being the Savior. And he knows how to transform sinners into sons of God. So, the first of these eight points is that the bronze altar is called the altar of burnt offering. That's its name. We'll see later other offerings were presented there. But it's not called the altar of sin offering. Nor is it called the altar of the trespass offering. Nor the altar of the peace offering. It's called the altar of the burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering was this. An Israelite would bring an animal and the animal would be killed and cut into pieces and burned to ashes. And the, the, the inward parts especially were burned and something fragrant ascended to God. That is the burnt offering. It may sound quite frightening to you. What does this mean? This means that something is absolutely for God. A burnt offering is an offering that is not food for anybody. It is God's food. It's called God's food, the bread of God. Do you know that God is hungry and God eats? Uh, Numbers talks about this. Where is my food? so there is a need in God for Christ, His Son, to be offered to Him as the one who is absolutely for God. That's the positive side of the burnt offering. The negative side is we were created by God for God. That's just the way it is. But all human beings live a contradiction. They were created by God, for God, but instead they're for themselves and live for themselves. Everything they do. And the supreme love is for themselves. And the devil knows this. And the devil told God about Job. You touch him. He will curse you to his face because all that a man has he will give for his life. Everything. Everything. That is why the enemy is only afraid of one kind of person. And I hope many of you in Christ would grow to be that kind of person. The enemy is afraid only of a person who does not love himself, but loves God and loves the house of God. In that kind of person, the enemy has no ground. So here we are, we're all fallen, and we're all for the self. Now don't be disillusioned, shaken when this light comes upon you. That is a mercy to you. Then you will not trust yourself. Then you will not rely on yourself to stay in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. You will realize there's only one person who is absolutely for God and that person isn't you and it's not me. It is Christ Jesus the Lord. Here was a man on the earth who said, I do not seek my own will. My teaching is not mine. I do the Father's work. I do not seek my own glory. Here is a person. His whole life, he was absolutely for God. And when he died, he died as a sacrifice. Offering himself to God for God's satisfaction. Our fundamental problem is that we're for ourselves. Because we're for ourselves, we want to live our own life. So we want to have a future and we want to make plans. Because we want to live. And we want to live our way. I wonder if in the flames. Of the painful side of Hades this morning, Frank Sinatra is still singing, I'll do it my way. I did it my way. Yes, Frankie, you did it your way. And now you're reaping the eternal fruit of doing it your way. I don't know if that's written on his gravestone or not. I did it my way. We like to bear the testimony, we did it God's way. How about that? But if, if you don't think people are for themselves, just watch how people drive. Now insurance companies are finding out they probably can't give insurance breaks to teenage girls anymore because they're just as bad as not worse, as, if not worse, as teenage boys driving. <laughs> Parody, the feminists should be happy. Now there's no gender distinction, right? (laughs) In insurance rates, okay? (laughs) My little jibe at the feminists. And and so this is our situation. And, And so there's several hundred of us here. I mean, how could we have any peace? How could we be together for two days? Everyone is for God. Four to a room in the Motel 6. everybody's for themselves, nobody's for God. How can we have the church? It's impossible. So there needs to be a place where this problem is solved. And the problem is solved at the altar in the outer court. I come here every morning, okay? Because that's the beginning. And I have to confess, Lord, I've been saved all these years, but in myself, I'm not for you. I know that. And I don't expect myself to be for you. Only you are for God. Thank you, Lord, I can lay my hands on you. That means I identify myself with you. You died in my place. I was not for God. You are for God. You died in my place. Now I can live a life for God in faith by being one with you. Don't look at yourself and say, impossible. The sin is still in you. The self is still in you. But Christ is in you. And he's the burnt offering. And he can live the church life. And he can stay in the house of God all the days of his life. He did it. He was the only person who did it. And now you need to come to a place, the cross, the altar of burnt offering, and tell the Lord. I need you, Lord Jesus, as my consecration. Consecration is Christ. Consecration is not you vowing to be for God. Consecration is not you saying daring, dramatic things in a mountain retreat about how you're going to be for God and not for yourself and whatever happens, you're for God. Consecration is your consent based on Christ as the burnt offering for God to take your life and do with it as it pleases Him. Consecration is Christ. Consecration is Christ as the burnt offering. That's why when you consecrate and you take Christ as your burnt offering at the altar of burnt offering, you lose your future. Now Christ is your future. Christ is everything. But deep within, you have peace with God because you are for Him in Christ. Selfish people cannot live the church life. Self is the enemy of the church life. It's not the world that's the biggest enemy. And it's not sin that's the biggest enemy, although it's terrible It's the self. Here we are in the house of God that's for the glory of God and that's for the expression of God. And we want something for ourselves. And we want people to pay attention to us and to love us. This undermines the church life. If we want to live in the house of God all the days of our life, We need to come to this altar of burnt offering and take Christ as our burnt offering and learn to live a life not for ourselves. Now in my fallen nature, I'm a person full of self. I'm a person with a strong self, not easily subdued. But eventually I was enlightened and received mercy from the Lord. That I have this self and hidden in the self is Satan but how I appreciate the Son of God the Son of Man who is my burnt offering I lay my hands on him and in union with him I testify I am 100% absolutely for God every cell in my body every breath I take every drop of blood in my veins is for God and the house of God. But I say this with a basis. The basis is not that I, by my willpower, have made myself for God. The basis is there's a place where I can experience Christ as the burnt offering. He is absolutely for God. And it's very sweet, because when you apply Christ in this way, a fragrance goes up to God, and God is so satisfied. Here is a 21-year-old senior at UCLA, who is a burnt offering. The whole world now before this one. What a future. But here there is a 21-year-old burnt offering. The issue is not whether you come to the full-time training or you don't come to the full-time training. That's up to God. The issue is will you come to the altar of God, your exceeding joy, and experience Christ as your burnt offering. And let your life go up in smoke to God. A fragrance ascending. If you do that, then you become part of the extension of that wonderful footnote in Matthew 26 on the golden futures, the heart treasures that are all wasted on the Lord. Here at the burnt offering altar, this is where you become a waste. This is where you shock and offend your professors and your family and the world system by recklessly squandering yourself in Christ upon God for his house. This is where you become nothing in the world and dead to the world and the world is dead to you. Here is where you make your choice. In Christ, then you join that company that have Christ as their burnt offering at the bronze altar. Then this becomes the base for your dwelling in the church life. I want to be very careful about talking about people close to me, but uh, my son isn't here, David isn't here, so I'll pretty sure he's not here but no doubt he'll find out you know maybe someone has a blackberry they're going to send him an email before the message is over anyway he didn't have any thought of coming to the full time training he wanted to fly jets and that's what he he majored in he wanted to fly jets and he was approved by the navy for their flight training program and Then one day, because others prayed, he just blurts out, I'm thinking real seriously about coming to the full-time training. I said, oh, okay. Now I'm scared to death. My kiddo might be the first training dropout. Oh no, (laughs) how am I gonna face it? I mean, (laughs) David's going to the training, okay. But he, he made up his mind and he went. And in the second term of training, I got a call, a kind of panic call. See, pilots, you might have seen them at the airport. They had this thing called the flight bag. And one of the things they have in there, in addition to their radios and their stuff like that, is their flight log. And that's where you have a record of all of your flying, all of your hours. I mean, that's crucial. Well, some naughty people broke into the brother's house uh, that was just south of Catella, and stole a lot of stuff, including what they thought was this valuable black bag. And David was distraught that a lot of the things I can replace, but my log is missing. You know, and he had consecrated, and no, no doubt he consecrated his flying because he's not flying jets. He's flying, a, flying the FTTA, right? New model, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just, he just, he just grieve for him. At the same time, I recognize God is really sovereign. I mean, this consecration is really real. Then amazingly, maybe about two weeks later, we get a call that his flight bag had been found at LAX with the flight logbook inside. The radio's gone. So it was taken and it was returned. He, I'm not boasting in my son. He's not serving because he's a Kangas. That's because of how the Lord led through the brothers. But his dream was to fly jets. His dream went up in flames on the altar of burnt offering. So will yours. You will lose your glory, and everyone who glories in you will lose their glory. Your parents who are living through you, who are living vicariously through you, who look to you to be their security, I would never suggest you don't honor them, but you don't honor them in the way that you put them above God. You come to the altar of burnt offering and you take Christ as your burnt offering and you offer yourself in Christ as a totality and the fire means God accepts it and God burns it and it goes up in smoke And then you just have some ashes there. You know what happens to the ashes? Someone designated takes the ashes and puts them on the east side of the altar, indicating sunrise and resurrection. And eventually those ashes are resurrected to become part of God's dwelling place. Now, many have made a decision to dwell here all the days of your life. We even sang our decision to the Father. Now, to work out this decision, we need the altar of burnt offering with Christ as our burnt offering. Consider those who shared yesterday afternoon. Do you sense any regret? And Brother Michael Stewart, do you sense any regret, any looking back at the medical world Is our brother Michael plowing and looking back? He's not looking back. None of us are looking back. We forget what's behind. Then, another point about the bronze altar is that it was bronze. It was made of acacia wood, signifying the humanity of Jesus, But that was covered with bronze. And you may not know, because you may not know the Bible that well, where this bronze came from. Okay, at a certain point when Israel was in the wilderness, there was a rebellion. You got 250 princes of the people. And some of their top leaders rose up in defiance against Moses and Aaron. And there was a very serious corporate rebellion against God's administration. And Moses and Aaron, they just prostrated themselves before the Lord and prayed. Then God came in to judge this rebellion. And God, through Moses, said, everybody, back off. Because if these people die a common death, the Lord has not appointed us. And while he was still speaking, the ground opened up and the 250, with all that belonged to them, went live into Sheol, into Hades. But the censers used for offering incense were rescued and those censers were made of bronze. Bronze in the Bible typifies judgment. And God told Moses, take those censers and beat the bronze into plates and use those plates to cover the altar of burnt offering. That's why it's called the bronze altar. This signifies the enemy hates what I'm going to say and your flesh won't like it. But this is a great deliverance. The bronze on the bronze altar signifies God's judgment on sin, on Satan, and on rebellion. The bronze altar is the place where we are redeemed through God's judgment that was born by Christ. Don't, don't, fear that you're now going to be judged and annihilated. Christ died on the cross as the bronze serpent. He was made in the likeness of the flesh of sin. When he was on the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh. He was judged as if he were sin itself, as if he were the rebel itself. And when he was on the cross, fulfilling the type of the bronze serpent, God could clear up the universe by judging sin and rebellion and Satan. Eventually, the Lord will enlighten us, and this is a mercy. This is a great mercy. We will realize sin dwells in our flesh making our flesh incurable. It can never be improved. Our soul will be transformed, but our flesh can never improve. And sin, by definition, according to 1 John, is lawlessness. You have to realize you have something in you that is as lawless as Satan itself. That means you refuse to be ruled. Nothing will rule you. No one's going to be your boss. No one's going to interfere with your life. You're your own person. Eventually this will culminate. The Antichrist will be called the man of lawlessness. And when he is manifested, he will release a tide of lawlessness on the earth. And he will become the great hero of all the lawless people. So, there is something in us that came from Satan that is sin, that is Satan itself, not in person, but in his nature and life, and that makes us rebels, rebellious in our being. There's no exception. There's no person on the earth who is not sin, who is not a rebel how can we have the church life and we've seen signs already it was in was it in in Seattle over with the World Trade Organization in Eugene Oregon the tide of rebellion and lawlessness that was unleashed in the 60s what a wild time the president is assassinated Martin Luther King is assassinated. Robert Kennedy is assassinated. Cities are in flames. And kids are walking around saying, Peace, peace. Lawlessness. How can God have a dwelling place in such a situation? Well, just as we need Christ as our burnt offering, We need Christ as our sin offering, the one who was judged on our behalf so that sin in the flesh, the element of rebellion, will be judged. And now every day I realize in my flesh, Lord, I'm still the same. I need you as my sin offering. But one thing that will happen eventually It may happen during the course of your being in the full-time training, if the Lord measures that out to you. But the Lord must show you the principle of rebellion in you. He must show you the element of sin in you. And you must realize deeply you are sin, you are rebellion, you're what the Bible says, a serpent, a, a son of Satan. This may sound like horrible news. No, it's not horrible news. It's horrible news only for the enemy because when we see this, he loses us. He can't hide in us anymore. And we don't spare ourselves anymore. First, we, we, we just have to praise the Lord. Lord, we praise you. You died on the cross You fulfilled the type of the bronze serpent. You were made sin for us. God judged you in our place. You died as the sin offering upon that altar, which is the cross. How can I not but love you? What kind of love is this? I'm not simply a person that had a few transgressions, that did a few things I shouldn't have done, but basically I'm okay. I'm a sinner. I'm a constitution of sin. I'm a rebel. And when I was in my rebellion and in my enmity, that is when you died as the sin offering for me. Now the Spirit enlightens me and presents the crucified Christ to me in such a way. How can I not love you and admit that I need you? So we come to the bronze altar and agree with God in His judgment on the sin and rebellion and Satan in us. And now we have a way for this evil element in our being to be checked so that we can live the church life. Then point three, at this altar of burnt offering is where we experience the effect of God's judicial redemption. God's complete salvation as a judicial aspect related to righteousness and an organic aspect related to the law. Redemption means you were lost, you have been bought, and now you belong. That's redemption. Can you remember that? You were lost. But you have been bought and now you belong. To redeem is to repossess at a cost. I remember many, many years ago hearing this little story and forgive me for telling you just a little simple story but it makes the point of a boy who made a sailboat and he worked quite hard at it. And one day he was Playing with it in a, in a stream in the springtime, and the current carried it away. So he lost it. The little boat that was his got lost. And one day he was walking on the street at a secondhand store, and there in the window was his boat. And he couldn't go in there and say, <coughs> excuse me, that's my boat. May I have it back? There's no way to do that. He had to buy it. Then, when he went home, he was cradling his little boat as children do, you know, going to bed with their favorite toys or stuffed animals. And he was saying, This sailboat is twice mine. And his parents heard him. What do you mean, this sailboat is twice mine? He said, It's mine because I made it, and it's mine because I bought it back. One day I was um, purging my library. I get in these modes sometimes to purge my library and take the books to, in Texas it was half price books, and try to get a little something for them. And so I did this, and then. A few days afterwards, I'm looking for this certain book on intellectual history. Where is it? Where's the book? I can't find it. Where is it? I realized I put it in the box. I sold it. So (laughs) I went to Half Price Books to their flagship store there in Dallas, went to the history section. It was on the shelf. I opened it up. Ron Kangas, written in ink. There it is on the shelf. Ron Kangas. I couldn't go down there and say, Uh, I'd like to show you my Texas driver's license, my passport, my birth certificate, my social security card, etc. I am Ron Kangas, the owner of this book. Give it to me. <laughs> I had to buy it back. Well, God created you. You got lost. So He made it. he made a decision. Talk about fundamental decisions. They start with God. He said... I want you all back. And I will pay the price of the precious blood of my son to redeem you at a cost. So that's redemption. Judicial means it must fulfill the requirements of the law. God can't just say, I love you very much, so I I forgive you. God can't do that. Because the devil would say, you're not righteous. On what basis do you forgive all of this? What about your righteous requirement? That sinners have to die. And if you're not righteous, there goes your throne, according to Psalm eighty-nine fourteen, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So God knows he must do everything righteously to fulfill the requirements of his own righteous law. So the Lord Jesus died and shed his blood to fulfill the requirement that the sinner must die. So we should have died, but he died because he died as a God-man and not just as a man. He is able to die for all of us. And his blood is effective to cleanse all of us. So when we come to this altar, we realize the basis of our Christian life is God's redemption. I have been bought. I have been bought with a price. Christ died for my sins and he died for me, the sinner. And according to Romans 4.25, God raised him from the dead For our justification. What does that mean? When Christ died on the cross, he said, It is finished. How do we know that God accepted his death on our behalf? When God raised Christ from the dead, he endorsed the redemptive death of Christ. We may say he signed the check, endorsed by God himself, paid in full. Praise the Lord! Now the resurrected Christ at the right hand of God is the proof that God has accepted his death for our redemption. Sometime read and enjoy and learn and sing hymn 1003 written by Brother Need. God in his righteousness must forgive us because Christ died for our sins. Christ paid the price. Suppose I am in debt to a credit card company for $20,000 and I am in arrears and they're calling me and sending collection agents after me and I cannot pay. But Dennis comes and says, I love this person and I will pay. And I write out a certified check for $20,000 payable to Visa. Do you accept payment? Yes, we accept payment. We don't care who pays. We just want the money. And then someone endorses the check. It's stamped. And now Dennis has the returned, canceled check in his hand. And say, a collection agent comes to me. Or the president of Visa comes to me and say, Ronald Archangus, pay your $20,000. Pay what you owe. What shall I do? I would say, I do not owe you anything. I would like to remind you, someone paid the price on my behalf. And I have in my hand a photocopy of the canceled check. Would you like me to fax it to you? Paid $20,000, a little note, to the account of Ronald R. Kangas. Now I have the endorsement. I'll send you a copy of both sides of the check. Paid in full, accepted by visa. Are you righteous or not? Are you a bunch of crooks? If you're righteous, you have no right to require me to pay anything because Dennis paid the price for me. That's how we can have boldness before God. We owed him so many things, and we had no way to pay, but the Lord Jesus died on our behalf. We have the canceled check in our hands. There is the resurrected Christ at the right hand of God and God has no right to require us to pay anything for our sins. That is why 1 John 1, 1.9 says that when we sin, we confess our sins and God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have judicial redemption. Isn't this good news? What a basis for our church life. Okay, you had a failure. You think I didn't have a failure? I had mammoth failures before you were born. I'm not here because I'm a good guy, I'm not here because I'm a spiritual person. I'm here standing on the basis of judicial redemption, telling you good news. This altar, this cross, is the foundation of our Christian life. Before on this altar, the blood of Jesus was shed. And the blood was visibly shed on that altar. It was actually covered with blood. The blood of Jesus satisfies all the requirements of God to such an extent That we can walk into the Holy of Holies and enter into the God of glory and enjoy Him face to face without any problems. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us. Having boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that when the dragon attacks us and accuses us day and night, it is so powerful that by the blood of Jesus, the lamb, we overcome the dragon. I'll tell you a story. 1968, that night in which the Lord exposed my whole ministry as being vain glory, I woke up. I was in a room with 18 brothers. I woke up, everyone was sleeping, and I was in the personal presence of Satan. I had never known it before. He was right there accusing me And I didn't want to wake up the brothers. I had just read the chapter on the overcomers in the glorious church and how the overcomers overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And the devil was there. So I got up, I walked into the shower room, and I gave a sermon to the devil. I overcome you by the blood of Jesus. Don't you dare accuse me. I reject your accusations. I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. And I conquer you by the blood of the Lamb. And now I give you the word of my testimony that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, destroyed you on the cross. You're defeated, Satan. You're going to the lake of fire. You're fire-bound. And I'm glory-bound. Hallelujah! But still... We're subjective, and we have condemnation. We think that's from God. It's really from ourself. So this same blood cleanses our conscience, purges our conscience from dead works. I love 1 John 1, 7. I love to apply this verse at the altar of God. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from every sin. God knows how many kinds of sins are represented by the life histories of us in this room. But good news, right now, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, is cleansing us from every sin. Sin you can remember and sin you have forgotten. There is no sin... That cannot be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Isn't this worth a hallelujah? hallelujah? This is our way into God and the way into His house. Do you think I have some advanced way now because I've been here so long and I'm a, I'm a co worker, so called? I got the same way you do. I wish someone told me this when I was in college. But that's my history. You get to hear the good news. The blood of Jesus satisfies God. The blood of Jesus overcomes Satan. The blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience. So you don't have to be afraid to introduce yourself to me and walk in the light after the meeting. Don't be afraid. We walk in the light together. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood... Is continually cleansing us that Greek tense implies continuous action actually strictly speaking the Bible doesn't say take the blood apply the blood it's not wrong the Bible just doesn't say it the Bible says the blood is continually cleansing you whenever you are in the light I have no sins this morning you have no sins this morning they're all cleansed away we are washed in the blood In the soul, cleansing blood of the Lamb. Yes, our garments are spotless, they are white as snow. We are washed in the blood of. Sisters, sing, we are washed in the blood, in the soul. Brothers, We are washed in the blood. Amen. Soul cleansing blood of the Lamb. Yes, our garments are spotless. They are white as snow. We are washed. Altogether, we are washed in the blood. In the soul cleansing blood of the Lamb. Yes, our garments are spotless. They are white as snow. We are washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is at the bronze altar. Isn't this good news? We're not for God, but Christ is for God. He's our burnt offering. We have sin and we're rebels, but Christ died as our sin offering. And sin has been condemned. We were lost, but we've been bought and now we belong. And we experience redemption. We have the blood of Jesus cleansing us from every sin. That's the first four points. The fifth is that here we have Christ as all the offerings. He is the burnt offering we've seen. He solves my problem of not being for God. He is the sin offering. He solves my problem of sin in the flesh. He is the trespass offering. He bore all of our sins in his body on the tree. He's the trespass offering for any of the trespasses of today. He is the meal offering. He is the only genuine man who ever lived, the real God man. And a portion of that offering is for God and the rest of us, rest of it is for us. He's the peace offering. We had no peace with ourselves, no, no peace with our family. No peace with God, but he himself is peace. He shed his blood on the cross to make peace. In resurrection, he preaches the gospel of peace. And now, as the Spirit, he is our peace. We experience all of this in a very short period of time just at this altar. You got problems? You got a problem with your humanity? The one brother testified about his humanity. I sympathize, except mine is worse. But anyway, we got okay, you got a problem with your humanity, then how can you live the church life and stay in the church life? You got such a bad humanity. Okay, there's an answer. You come to the bronze altar and eat the meal offering, and you get the uplifted humanity gradually added to you, and you'll become a bona fide God-man in the house of God. And you'll be saved from being a kind of angelic person with a kind of weird spirituality floating around in the church life, and you'll be a genuine, bona fide human being, that sometimes you say, praise the Lord, and sometimes you say, hi, you okay? You know, God, men, they don't always say praise the Lord, sometimes they say hi. And and they may say to a suffering person from Indiana, the terrapins won, ha, ha. You know, in other words, you, <laughs> in other words, probably wouldn't laugh like that. That's my fall in humanity. <laughs> they might say, "Look, I realize you're disappointed, but Maryland never made it to the final, and they had a very good season, and so why don't you just uh, be at peace?" <laughs> okay, I'm getting into trouble here, so I think I'll exit. This illustration, but the point I was trying to make is that, you know, we don't have to just kind of float around with a kind of strange spiritual look on us and, and we put a certain weird inflection into our prayers and then, you know, everyone's afraid to relate to us. What is this? It's not God. It's not man. It's a third thing. And, and that's a heresy. No, we become genuine God people. Isn't this, isn't this wonderful? And so none of us is born this way. Were you born this way? Even if you're an Eagle Scout, you're not born this way. But Jesus is this kind of person. You come to the altar, you get him. And and you get him as peace. Eventually, you become a peacemaker. Then six, the altar for us is a table. That's Hebrews 13.10. So the table, this was the table on which we display the bread and the wine. We should always display it. We should remove the covering before we break it. We always display, because we declare the Lord's death till he comes. The altar on which he died now becomes a table, and we come here to enjoy the very one who died for our redemption. The burnt offering is for God, but we partake of all the other offerings. There's a table right here. So we come to morning table, have breakfast at the bronze altar, feeding on Christ as the offerings. Now, two other points. Then I'll finish in maybe seven or eight minutes, and then there'll be a lot of time for you to share. Then after we have the sharing, we're going to allocate about 15 minutes for those that have requested to be baptized. And we'll be very glad to immerse you into the triune God. Amen. And we'll put you into the death of Christ Amen. and into the body of Christ Amen. and into Christ himself. Amen. So we're going to delay our lunch, 15 minutes. Isn't it worthwhile to, to delay 15 minutes so we can immerse some of these dear ones into the process God? And through your baptism you can apply all the effects of this bronze altar to you that you may dwell in the Father's house all the days of your life. Now point seven is at, is at the bronze altar where we pay the price required by God of us for living in the Father's house. It's not cheap. I would not cheat you by telling you that there's no cost. You may ask, what does it cost? Well, eventually, everything. Then what do you get? You get the unsearchable riches of Christ. You get the process and consummated triune God. You get the reality of the body of Christ. You get millions of brothers and sisters to be the components with you of God's family. You get the meaning of life. You get your place in the Father's house. You get Christ as your nourishment. You get the Spirit as your bountiful supply. You get our God's organic salvation. You get his saving life. You get the grace of God. You get the mercy of God. You get the presence of God. Actually, it's not that much of a price. Some people, they just can't get clear, they say, about the church. I just can't get this matter about the ground of the church, one city and one church. Well, I suppose some people are dense. They really can't get it. But actually, there's a reason that some are not clear. And that is because in their heart, they're not willing to pay the price to come this way. If you are a a pastor of a Christian organization with five thousand people, you have a television ministry, your name is in Who's Who, it's not convenient for you to see the truth concerning the church. Because you come here, we'll say, Hi, brother, we need someone to work on serve on children's meetings. Um, Brother, um, we're wondering if you might serve with us on cleaning the restrooms in the meeting hall. Would would you please come at 8 o'clock? Would you get some knee pads? Because we're going to be on our knees scrubbing. Oh, 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 you don't do physical labor. Well, we don't have any hired clergy here. We don't have any clergy here. We don't have any classes here. We're just a bunch of brothers here. This is a hard thing to take. Sometimes the brother can almost take it. Oh, but the wife. Oh, I'll be the wife of a latrine cleaner? That's not why I married you. I married you with a motive. Yes, I I loved you, there was some love there, but I had a kind of expectation in marrying you that I would be the wife of someone great. You, Bill, me, Hillary. You become great, I become great. Now you're becoming nothing, and what is that going to make me? What am I going to tell my friends when I go to my high school reunion? What's your husband doing? Well, well, now he has a job. He's helping the brothers lay linoleum. Some say, oh, you can't get clear. They need to hear a straight word. You're not willing to pay the price. That's why you're not clear. As soon as you become willing to pay the price, you'll be very clear. Someone came to the Lord and said, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm absolute... I'm really absolute, I'll go wherever you want. The Lord said, really? I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. Foxes have holes, birds have roosts. Son of man has no place to lay his head. You want to follow me? You better consider. The Lord said, count the cost. He told these parables, count the cost. Rich young man, a ruler came to him, wanting to follow him, and the Lord just said, okay, just sell everything. Give it to the poor and come follow me. His countenance fell. We know from one of the gospel accounts the Lord loved him. The Lord didn't say, I love you, so how about we just forget about the price? I just love you so much. And I'm not doing well with recruits. I'm not doing that well, you know. I used to have this crowd, but now after I gave the word in John 6, most of them left. The Lord ended up with 120, that's what he had as the fruit of his ministry. 120 radicals in the upper room in Jerusalem, ready to pay the price. So he loved this young man, but he didn't lower the standard to him. And the Lord knows what is the price in each one of us. We don't universalize that requirement. But when you pay it at the altar, God is exceeding joy. You soar. Your being is free. You tell the enemy, I cannot be bought. There is nothing you can offer me. No scholarship. No job. No opportunity. Nothing. I'm not for sale to you. I have sold myself to the triune God. I went to the altar, and in my fellowship with God, I found out what it was He wanted of me. He made it known in fellowship with me. And here at this altar, energized by the grace of God, I paid the price. And now the last point. We live a life of the altar and the tent. When Abraham was called, he was in a city. Eventually, he had to believe God and go out by faith, not knowing where. Instead of living in a city, he lived in a tent, indicating he was a sojourner on the earth. And outside his tent was an altar. And as he traveled, wherever he went, he had an altar and a tent. The altar signifying that he was not for himself. He was for God. The tent signifying that he had no permanent dwelling on the earth. He was a sojourner. I know a good number of older saints, by which I mean well into middle age, When they were young, they went to retreats and they consecrated and they made vows. But after five years, 15 years, 20 years, first the altar goes. No more altar. No more daily consecration. And then when the altar goes, the tent goes then you just settle down and become a citizen of this world. Of course, you can justify it up and down. We have to be practical. I have to take care of my children's education. I have to take care of my daughter's orthodontic work. I know the story. My daughter was in braces for about 10 years. The first one was incompetent, We had to do the whole thing over. She had to have major surgery on her face to redo her jaw. She lost I don't know how many retainers. They're stepped on. They were thrown in trash cans. And you remember them 100 miles down the road? Don't talk to me about the practicalities of human life. I know them. Stop making the excuses. Face the fact. You're not living in a tent anymore. But I'd like to tell you something. I don't really live at 2121 West Chalet in a house I appreciate, but don't really like that much. It's not my dream house. I live in a tent. And my wife lives in a tent. And outside of my tent is an altar. And my altar declares to God and to Satan and to the world, I'm not for myself, I'm for God and for God's dwelling place. And my tent declares I'm a sojourner. Along with other brothers, I travel a lot. One time I decided to count how many different beds I slept in in the course of a year. And I kind of got a little dizzy and just let it go. I know what it's like to live a practical human life as a husband, as a father, as a son to elderly parents. I exercise. I take care of my health. I read the New York Times to some extent to find out what's going on. But I'm radical. Are you radical? Meaning at the very root, certain things are settled. God's grace, based on His mercy, has come to me and an altar was set up and every day I place myself and that day there, That day is on the altar. And I am on the altar, the safest place to be. And everything related to me is there. Let God do what he wills with me, with my wife, with my daughter, with my sons, with anything. Let him do anything he wants with me, in me, through me, to me. I have only one request, that whatever happens, build up the house of God. Supply life to the saints. Glorify the Son of God. Put shame to the enemy and defeat him. Build up the body of Christ. Prepare the bride of Christ. And bring the Lord back. Then there's a tent indicating we're sojourners. We're looking for that city. And only when we're all there safely in the Father's house, now become the new Jerusalem, will I have my abode for eternity. This is the bronze altar that qualifies us to enter into God and thereby to enter into the house of God. This is the bronze altar that enables us to live in God and thereby to live in the house of God. It's the altar of burnt offering. It's the altar where sin and rebellion are judged. It's the place of judicial redemption. It's where we appreciate the precious blood of Christ. At this altar, we have all the offerings to solve all our problems, and the offerings become our food, and the altar becomes our feasting table. And here, having been supplied by all of the foregoing items, here we pay our vows. We pay the price. And then we move with God on the earth, day by day, spending all of our days while we're living in a tent. Those who, only those who live in a tent can dwell in the Father's house. You make a house for yourself and you lose the tent. You also lose the reality of the Father's house. Your name can be on the phone list. You may come to the big blending gatherings. You may still identify yourself in your heart with the Lord's recovery. But you're not in the recovery actually and practically. You're not in the recovery intrinsically and organically. You're in the recovery like people are in a denomination. You write out your offering checks and your heart is there, but your being is somewhere else. I don't care to be that kind of mediocre, lukewarm believer. I care to be boiling hot. Not by natural zeal, but by the triune God whom I meet at the altar of God. Then all of our problems are solved and we are qualified to enter into God and enter into his house and be one with him to carry out his economy. We have now about 28 or 29 minutes. And I don't say this to, uh, to make it sound heavy, but a practical way of coming to the altar of God is to come to one of the two mics and to speak for 30 seconds. Okay, We have to limit you to 30 seconds for our time. And there may be many, uh, especially those that haven't spoken. If you're prompted to speak, this is a good opportunity. Just focus on one point and share something for 30 seconds. Once you hear the sound of the twang... Just finish it up with another sentence and go on to somebody else. But if you mean business, to respond, to complete the cycle of the ministry, if you want to join us at the altar of God, this is a good opportunity. So why don't you come forward now and share something. Let's give place to those who haven't spoken. But if the Lord is really leading you to speak a second time, then maybe after a few minutes you could come up. So let's hear from you.